Conversation reparations. Reparations are due, so just give me what you owe. Conversation reparations. We are here again with another installment. We would like to share with you today a very uh, important show on to kind of clear up some of the different um, things that you may have heard about the reparations movement or just to give information that you don't normally hear about the historical aspect of the reparations movement and even the current aspect of the reparations movement. This information um, doesn't make the news except for when something very specific happens. And so we thought it would be important to give you what we're going to call 10 things you should know about the reparations movement. And even in putting that together, the 10 different areas, I realized there was even more than, well, a lot more than 10 things. But um, when we discuss the 10 things even embedded in that, there will be others. Well, my name is Brother Jimoke Fetayo. I serve as the host of this show, Conversation Reparations. This show is a product of INCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. As we have been beginning our shows in this second wave, we have uh, begun with giving you some news information about what's going on in the reparations movement. And so we will do that at this point. Uh, hello, you still there, Brother Jamoke? Yes, I am. Okay, you, um, so w- where are we at right now? Yeah, we're ready for the, the, a news clip, one of the three news clips that we, uh, that we have queued up. Okay. All right, so uh, it's queued up. playing the ad right now, so if you want to introduce the one about the Louisville mayor signs the resolution... Sure. So we we um, reported on a, on okay, a here, here go. show that activists still a huge debate about reparations. Should the government offer compensation to descendants of slaves or even all black Americans? In our city, slave pens sat up and down Main Street for decades, as Louisville was a major slave trading port, despite the support of the Union in the Civil War. Today, as Gabrielle Harmon tells us, Mayor Fisher signed a resolution to begin a study on the question of reparations. A resolution supporting the study of reparations for black descendants of slavery has been signed. A step city leaders say is long overdue. Exciting to me. I don't know about you or others, but that's exciting. On Thursday, Louisville made a monumental statement in reference to racial reconciliation and justice. It's about standing up to the truth and understanding that it's well beyond time for all Americans to understand that the roots of America's prosperity today are directly tied to the institutions of slavery. Mayor Fisher signed Metro Council's resolution in support of H.R. 40, a federal bill that studies reparations, how to educate the public, and how the government can apologize and compensate descendants of enslaved Africans. The check that was marked insufficient funds that Dr. King talked about, that check will finally be marked sufficient. Kathleen Parks is an advocate for reparations and says it's not just about money, although it is important. 
uh, housing, jobs, uh, creating uh, businesses and enterprises, uh, more quality education that includes the history of descendants of American slaves. H.R. 40 was introduced 32 years ago, and for the first time in April, the House moved the bill forward. Steps Park says are leading in the right direction. It's already unfolding. Uh, what happened in Evanston, Illinois, uh, although it's not perfect, it unfolded. What happened uh, with the Bruce family, uh, having their property, their land, restored to them to the amount of $75 million, it's already unfolding. This is long overdue, and this is the only solution to the race problem in the United States of America. A conversation nationwide with the support of Louisville. In Louisville, Gabrielle Harmon, WHAS 11, on your side. A local nonprofit, Change Today, Change Tomorrow, says it's received a six-figure reparation payment. The leaders of the group tell us they were approached by a white grad student who had recently inherited money after her 25th birthday, but she learned her family's wealth could be traced back to her grandfather, who enslaved six people. Because the names of those slaves were not recorded, she decided to donate the money to Change Today, Change Tomorrow, a group led by black women here in Louisville. And today, organizers say that donation is just the start. We have to challenge other corporations, foundations, and individuals to really pay reparations back to really redirect those dollars and redistribute wealth to begin to fix the inequalities in this country and right here in our own backyard in Louisville. Change Today, Change Tomorrow is a nonprofit that focuses on the needs of the black community by providing resources and education in Louisville. In the center of the German capital, construction workers comb over the finishing touches on this modern-day metropolitan palace. This is the Humboldt Forum, a 644 million euro museum, which will soon open to the public in Berlin. This building is in many ways a replica, designed to resemble an 18th century Prussian palace, which originally sat on this same site before largely being destroyed in World War II. But it's what will be kept inside that's causing controversy. Over 20,000 priceless artefacts will be displayed in this museum, including many items stolen from Africa during Germany's colonial rule. Berlin Postcolonial is an NGO opposed to the museum's plans to display such artefacts. The objects are not supposed to be exhibited there. They are supposed to be brought back home. And it's home. It is in Africa. Several governments in Africa are making similar pleas. Just last month, Nigeria called for the restitution of the Benin bronzes, ancient sculptures which once decorated the former kingdom of Benin, an area that is now in southern Nigeria. The move to return the objects is backed by several high-profile historians. They are clearly looted art, so they could and should be immediately restituted. I suggested they should be restituted, and some should be put on display as a loan from Nigeria, and they should pay a fee to build a museum in Nigeria. I even said they should rename the Humboldt Forum into Benin Forum, because uh, to symbolize that we want to break with this history of looting. The construction of this enormous palace has in many ways started a new conversation in Germany about just how the country confronts its colonial past. Many activists say the school system here doesn't teach enough about the atrocities carried out in Germany's former African colonies, and that's something they'd like to see change. Campaigners say that lack of awareness is just one of the reasons the museum is continuing with its plans to display looted African artefacts. But when you press, ah, is there some that will say, oh yes, I do remember. Yes, we had some colonies in Africa, but for quite a short time, and we were totally laughed. been hearing that 
much times and really sometimes even my my intestines start to twist when I hear that because I know how brutal it was. In a statement, the Humboldt Forum said it was open to the idea of returning some items and that it had been in contact with Nigerian authorities. Trent Murray, SABC News, Berlin. All right. So again, we have been endeavoring to keep you up abreast of what's been going on in the reparations movement. Uh, in addition to what we share on our show, uh, we'll get by giving you these news clips. Just a little bit of commentary. In the first clip, we know that a lot of organizing coming out of um, um, George Floyd and particularly Breonna Taylor in Louisville is, you know, I'm sure we know had an influence on them moving forward and and bringing reparations to the city council and and being um, approved there. Uh, In terms of change today and change tomorrow, um, in in Colbert's definition of reparations, we cite the fact that we we have what we call four criminal or four criminal areas, and those four criminal areas are government, institutions, corporations, and families. So in addition to just focusing on the government, we do look at how institutions and families and corporations can also um, contribute to this process of reparations. And then finally, in the last <clears throat> the last news story you just heard, uh, this is a very big story that's happening in, in not only in Germany, but also in the United States and in France and other countries, colonial, former colonial countries that um, stole objects from from Africa um, focusing right now in terms of Nigeria and Nigeria bronzes but even other artifacts and artwork and so part of reparations is the is those pieces going back to to Africa going back to Nigeria um, one of the things I think that was not necessarily mentioned in that particular news uh, brief is that uh, Nigeria is building a a museum, and actually there's been several new museums being built in in West Africa, and to so that they will be able to properly um, take care of and house those um, that art because that's one of the arguments that's not only I say arguments that one of the excuses that's made is they don't have proper places to take care of those pieces, and it's really irrelevant that people say we want them anyway but they are building museums and have recently built museums that um, will be able to um, take care of those artifacts in, in, in Africa. I have a All question. Right, so let's move into... I have a question. The ten things you should know about the reparations movement. Jamoke, can you not hear me? Yeah, I hear you now. Okay, uh, before you move on to those 10 things, just on that last story, I'd like to comment. I actually had sure. been doing some research on the kingdom of Benin. Now, this isn't the country mm-hmm. of Benin that used to be the kingdom right. of Dahomey. This is, this. they're not right. the same places. And so, but the kingdom of Benin, just like the kingdom of Dahomey, um, but they're now saying that kingdom don't exist. That area's been folded up into Nigeria. So that country don't even exist anymore. But my question is, is when I look at these West African um, participants in the slave trade, because this wasn't called the transatlantic slave raid, where Europeans and Arabs were just raiding the coast of Africa. No, they wasn't doing that. They were going to trade with Africans, and some of that trade was with human beings, our ancestors here in this hemisphere. And so my thing is, is I know this is an official position of of Cobra or any other reparations group uh, that I've heard of, but it's my contention that if that artwork in Germany belonged to that former slave trading kingdom, that that should go that should go to uh, as reparations to the victims of that na- that particular non-existent nation that doesn't exist anymore. But that's that's just me. I just thought it interesting that that news clip and um will talk about that country 
when I had never heard of it before last week and was just reading about it. But thank you for letting me add my piece to that. All right. And I think also I just wanted to add, too, we had reported on earlier in one of our shows about how Louisville was organizing um, to on that vote for reparations. And so, again, we're able to keep you abreast in real time in terms of how this movement is unfolding from um, from organizing stage to actualiz- actualization stage. And so the 10 things you should know about the reparations movement, uh, and this is, I guess I should say not official in Cobra. This is a this is from Brother Jumoke, and again, even within these ten things, there will be several points that will be made. So we'll start out with number one, with forty acres and a mule. And oftentimes in this movement, I I hear some people say that you know that was a promise or it was a myth, and that is not true. It was a actual field order that was given by General Sherman, Sherman's Field Order 15, and you can look that up and find that document. But to me, what's really important about 40 Acres and a Mule, which is also which is even less discussed, which is the fact that it was a specific territory inside of the United States, not just land anywhere throughout the United States, but a specific territory starting from Charleston South Carolina and the islands on the coast of South Carolina and Georgia going all the way down to a little south of Jacksonville, Florida, and that that land would be a separate territory for the former um, enslaved Africans to to live and, and, and control their own affairs. And I'm going to actually read from the Sherman's Field Order 15, because I think that many times um, people quote uh, talk about 40, the 40, um, 40 acres and a mule. Never really read the actual Sherman's Field Order 15. I'm just going to read a short section of it, though. The islands from Charleston South and the abandoned rice fields along the rivers for 30 miles back from the sea and the country bordering the St. John's River, Florida, that's right below Jacksonville, are reserved and set apart for the settlement of the Negroes, now made free by the acts of war, and a proclamation of the President of the United States. That's point number one. Point number two, at Buford, Hilton Head, Savannah, Fernanda, Fernanda St. Augustine, and Jacksonville, the blacks may remain in their chosen or custom vocations, but on the islands and in the settlements hereafter to be established, no white person, whatever, unless military officers and soldiers detailed for duty, will be permitted to reside in the and the sole and exclusive management of affairs will be left to the free people themselves, subject only to the United States military authority and the acts of Congress. By the laws of war and orders of the President of the United States, the Negro is free and must be dealt with as such. That's from Section 1 and Section 2 of Sherman's Field Order 15. And also I've seen myself some of the deeds that were given out to people during that time. Now we do know that that land was subsequently taken back um, much of it given back to the former plantation owners, but there was a time when over 400,000 acres of land was given out under this order. Um, and then that um, order turned into what's now no, now known as the Freedmen's Bureau, and even the Freedmen's Bureau went through several different renditions. Uh, however, in the early renditions of the Freedmen's Bureau, it also um, had provisions for um, former enslaved Africans to procure land. Uh, again, we could unpack that even more, but we want to share, and perhaps at the end, depending on what the time is, uh, Scotty can ask me some questions or some things I want to embellish, we'll come back to. So, point number two, H.R. 40, also known as the Commission to Study and Develop Reparations Proposals for African Americans Act. Let me read that again. Commission to study and develop reparations proposals for African American Act. All right. So oftentimes we were here and hearing it less now, but that uh, H.R. 40 was just a study bill, just a look at slavery. Um, but that is no longer the case. In 2017, H.R. Uh, 40 was rewritten. And it was rewritten and, and with three major 
um, what we consider three major changes. Um, one, for it to call for reparations proposals and, and to submit a repara reparations proposal to the United States um, government. Number two is that it was language was added in there for it to be that those reparations proposals be in alignment with the United Nations five forms of reparations. And you've heard me talk about that on the show before, the United Nations five forms of reparations, which is one of our ten points, so we'll we'll go in detail on that a little later. But the bill was um, updated to include the, the United Nations five forms of full repair and reparations, which is very critical. And it was also updated, the commission, the commissioners in, in the initial bill were picked by the um, Congress and the president and I think one person from the Senate. Um, however, we it was added into the commission that there would be six members that would come from civil society and reparations organizations. So again, so really we consider fundamental changes that were made to HR 40 in 2017, and that's the current version that uh, is sitting in, in in Congress right now. In addition to that, as I said, you probably I know I was going to I said you're going to get 10, but you have to get getting more than 10. But in addition to that, this is the very first year since the bill was first introduced in 1989, and every year by Congressman John Lewis and excuse me, not Congressman, Congressman John Conyers, until it was then picked up by. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, and this is the first time that the bill came out of committee and has come to the floor of Congress. And in COBRA, even as we speak right now, along with a coalition of other organizations, are working very diligently, very hard to get a floor vote on 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 HR 40. Um, in order for a bill to pass, you have to get 218 um, Congress people to pass in the House. And at this point, we have 194 co-sponsors of the bill, and, and that's unheard of. It's a, it's a major precedent. And in addition to those 194, we have a, a 11 people that are committed. And what that means is that they don't want to put their name down as uh, being a co-sponsor. However, that when, the, when HR 40 comes to the floor vote, they are committed to voting yes. So we are up to 205 people, which means there's only about 13 Congress people that, um, that we, more that we need to persuade to vote for this bill. And so we're very close to having this bill uh, being voted for and passed in, in the House of Representatives. And then the last thing, um, nope, that is it. So that's H.R. 40 and, and the significance and importance of H.R. 40 and where we are currently in real time with H.R. 40. Point number three, um, Senator Cory Booker introduced in April 2019 a Senate companion bill to H.R. 40. So this bill is exactly the same wording, except for it's in the Senate. And right now we have 24 co-sponsors in the Senate. Again, that's a pretty good number. So it's 100 senators and uh, 50 Democrats. So we're talking about uh, almost 50% of them have um, signed on as a co-sponsor to the Senate version. And also just recently found out we actually had a Senate briefing on H.R. 40, a Senate um, briefing, which we've had several um, in on H.R. 40 as well in the House. But a briefing is when um, experts come in and talk about a bill and talk about the significance of the bill and how it impacts um, people in, in America and the United States. And so the first hearing uh, briefing was held on the Senate version of of, H, H, of HR 40, or in the Senate it's called S, S40. Point number four, actually going through this faster than I thought, so we'll have some time, I guess, to talk about these some more at the end. In 1915 and 1915, over 100 years ago, under Cali House leadership, the association filed a class action lawsuit 
known as Johnson versus McAdoo in the federal court against the U.S. Treasury Department for $68 million. $68 million was the amount of cotton tax collected between 1862 and 1868, and it was argued was due to the plaintiffs because this cotton had been produced by them and their ancestors as a result of their involuntary servitude. This was the first documented black reparations litigation in the U.S. on a federal level. Uh, again, a milestone story that people are not familiar with. People are becoming more and more familiar with Cali House and her organization, but we often don't even talk about the lawsuit that she filed. The U.S. Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia denied the claim based on governmental immunity, as did the U.S. Supreme Court, siding with the appeals court decision. Point number five, sponsored by the group of eminent persons in the Commission for Reparations of the Organization of African Unity, now known as the African Union, the first Pan-African Conference on Reparations was held April 27th through the 29th, 1993, leading to the issuing of the Abuja Proclamation. Um, I feel like this is important history because, well, several reasons. One is it shows that there was, that African nations have been concerned um, about reparations and they invited people from the United States and the diaspora from the Caribbean to, as well as African activists and scholars um, that's part of the Organization for African Unity who came together at that conference and they issued a proclamation, the Abuja Proclamation, um, I think was very um, well put together because it talks about concerns for reparations as it relates to Africa, as well as it relates to us in the diaspora. Uh, a, a document that I feel is a, a unifying document for us to, to incorporate in our reparations domains. Point number Six, and why don't we stop at five since we are also at the halfway point um, of our show and listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. You are tuned in to the Black Talk PSA Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed we're back. All right. We good? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Um, one of the very, very important um, figures in the reparations movement is Queen Mother Moore. Uh, she's important for many reasons, but in, in terms of our uh, 10 things you should know, we're, we're citing this particular thing in 1957, and again, in 1959, Queen Mother Moore presented a petition to the United Nations, arguing for self-determination against genocide and for land and for reparations, making her an international advocate. Queen Mother Audley Moore explained the petition in which she asked for $200 billion to monetarily compensate for 400 years of slavery. The petition also called for compensation to be given to African Americans who wish to return to Africa, as well as those who wish to remain in America. Again, we've done a whole show on Queen Mother Moore, uh, has made great contributions, but we cannot talk about the reparations movement and, and not lift up one of the greatest um, advocates and um, workers for reparations, Queen Mother Moore. Point number seven, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was an advocate for reparations. Um, that's all I have for point number seven. Um, what I can add to that briefly at this point, though, is that, you know, I've researched many of his speeches 
his writings, sermons, interviews, where he has referenced uh, his support for reparations. I think having found where he actually used the word reparations, but he definitely talks about the principle of reparations and what is due to us because of what uh, has happened to us in the form of slavery and um, discrimination. And actually, again, I think we did a whole show uh, around his um, Earth Day, around playing reparations quotes from him or reading reparations quotes from him. Point number eight, <clears throat> and this is another very important point, is that in 2001, the World Conference Against Racism was held in Durban, South Africa, under the UN auspices from the 31st of August to the 8th of September. And what is significant about this convention is that activists began organizing, led by the December 12th movement in COBRA and the National Black United Front, began organizing um, probably about a year or so before this conference. Um, getting um, people to understand the importance of the document. Whenever there are these United Nations gatherings, there's always a uh, document that comes out. And it was determined that what we wanted to be, one of the things that needed to be put in this document is that slavery be declared a crime against humanity, that that specific language be put in there. And so there was even, again, we did a show on this as well, but there were even um, pre-conferences leading up to the World Conference Against Racism. And at those pre-conferences, particularly the one in, um, that in Central South America as well as in Africa, um, and there, it was really pushed very strongly that people be on board, that we make sure we get that language into the uh, document, and part of the reason why that and reason why that language is so important is because it set the international precedent uh, precedent. And one of the things that precedent that it sets is that people cannot use nations cannot use the excuse of statute of limitations when something is declared a crime against humanity. They say, oh, well, that happened so long ago, or what have you. Um, they want something to declare a crime against humanity. So that was a great victory for really people, we say for people of African descent worldwide, um, to have that so as a foundation to um, use when they work locally in their own nations towards reparations. Uh, fortunately, that um, convention, say unfortunately, but the United States delegation pulled out of that conference, um, and even in the, some of the follow-up conferences, um, the United States and the United Nations, uh, United States did not send representatives to um, the follow-up um, conferences to Durban, uh, even um, under the administration of Barack Obama. Um, there was a follow-up meeting and he did not send a uh, delegation to that meeting. Imagine that, the most important re meeting in the world sponsored by the United Nations on, on race and racism, and a uh, man of partial African descent <laughs> decided to have the United States boycott that particular um, convening. Anyway, I'm kind of adding a little bit more because I'm seeing that you know, we got more time than I realized. This was going to go faster than I realized. So anyway, um, let's go to point nine and ten, and then we'll can come back and discuss these. Uh, Brother Scotty got some good questions where we can elaborate on some of these a little a little more. As a follow up to the World Conference against this is point number nine. We're on point number nine. As a follow up to the World Conference of Racism, excuse me, World Conference Against Racism and part of the International Decade for People of African Descent, which, which came out of the World Conference Against Racism, that from January 2015 to December 
2024 as the International Decade for People of African Descent. As a part of that, the United Nations has been sending out what's called working group of experts to look at different countries and to see how they are addressing the issue of racism. And so the delegation, the United Nations delegation was sent to the United States and visited um, five or six cities in the United States and met with African-American activists and others to um, get uh, information about the United States and the racism in America. And and they produced a, a report, and in their report, they specifically called for the United States to pay reparations to people of African descent, and even they mentioned H.R. 40 specifically, that the United States should pass H.R. 40. Point number 10, and we mentioned this earlier, the United Nations five forms of reparations. And again, there was a conference uh, convening in the United Nations, I believe back in the uh, early 90s, when there were different countries and different groups that were raising up the issue of reparations. So it was thought that um, the United Nations um, needed to kind of standardize um, what reparations is, defining it, what are the different forms of reparations, what does it look like. And so they came up with what they considered the five forms of full repair reparations. Those five are, number one, cessation and non-repetition. They're not in any particular chronological order. But number the first one I'll speak about, cessation and non-repetition, speaks to the fact that the crimes that are happening to a people need to stop as a part of reparations. You know, we, we talk about reparations, and I don't like the term slavery reparations, and people say that often, um, but reparations is not limited to slavery. It, it embraces all the way up to now in terms of the continued oppression of black people and wealth disparities, health disparities, educational disparities, police murder, um, murder, murder by police officers, and so many other things, um, unequal justice systems, and uh, we could go on and on. And so that the crimes that happen against us must stop, uh, against any group of people that's calling for reparations, they must stop. And far-sweeping, far-reaching, uh, creative, uh, I say, um, innovative public policy has to be put in place such that it doesn't happen even into the future. Um, something that will require, I think, a lot of visionary thought. How do we design our reparations? So not only does it not continue in our lifetime, but that it doesn't even um, come back in the future. We have seen many times in our movement um, when we have made progress, we've seen the backlash to that progress. And so we have to be prepared for that. Number two, under the United Nations Five Forms of Reparations, we will discuss is restitution. So restitution looks at the legal standing of a people. It looks at restoring people to the way that they were before the crime happened. It looks at the restoration of culture, language, um, citizenship. Even in in this country, our citizenship is questionable. Uh, Even in this country, our citizenship was um, citizenship was imposed upon us and our ancestors were not asked if we wanted to be citizens of the United States but it was imposed on them through the 14th Amendment after the 13th Amendment and so restitution looks at legal standing, citizenship sovereignty um, culture, language, restoration of how people uh, would be if the crime had not happened rehabilitation number three in the United Nations five forms of reparations. So rehabilitation looks at the health and the well-being of a people, people who have been traumatized, um, people who have been, who have witnessed um, traumatic experiences based on, um, and for our case, based on uh, race, uh, racism, 
we know that people um, are impacted by that. We know that people need um, counseling. People need so when we talk about rehabilitation, we're talking about addressing the mental health, the psychological health, the and just and the overall health and well-being of people of African descent who have been um, brutalized and traumatized for over 400 years. Um, one of the things that we often lift up when we talk about rehabilitation is transgenerational epigenetics, where research is now being done, and Encoba will be putting out a report soon about how to address transgenerational epigenetics. Um, we know that research has been done that shows that uh, when someone is traumatized, it, it gets encoded into their genes. They pass it down from one generation to the next generation, which weakens their immune system, which weakens them in, in other ways as well, and that there are certain behaviors that uh, result from trauma and from trauma that has been passed down from one generation to the next generation. So all of that has to be addressed in full repair reparations under rehabilitation. Compensation. Um, compensation is an important aspect of reparations. Again, it's not all about compensation, as we've mentioned these other three areas, and there's still a fifth to come to discuss. However, compensation is very important because we live, that's this whole premise of, of enslavement um, was based on economics and, and the loss of being able to build wealth in the black community, not even, not especially during enslavement, but even after the enslavement period and in terms of how laws were structured for and redlining in terms of home ownership, in terms of so many different things, uh, how economics has been taken out of the black community or not being allowed to produce our own economic um, wealth and pass it on generationally, pass it down generationally. So, um, Again, there's examples of that um, that needs to be addressed, and we know that we live in a capitalist society, and economics helps to move things forward. When we talk about health care, we're talking about money for hospitals and money for health care. When we talk about education, there's money to train teachers and how to teach about African history and culture. So money is a very important tool that, that is needed when we're talking about reparations and healing and repair. And then the last form of reparations, number five, is satisfaction. Satisfaction looks at um, restoring the, the dignity of a people. It looks at how we've had over the years all kinds of, of myths and, and, and about people of African descent you know, that we are criminals, that we're lazy, that, and, and these things have been, um, as I say, embedded in African culture, excuse me, in, in the U.S. culture, in the United States, embedded through movies, through cartoons, through um, the news, through um, uh, uh, academia, all of these, you know, things in terms of black people being less intelligent, um, black people being more um, animalistic, uh, um, so many things that we could talk about. So we have to clean up all of that narrative, all that misnarrative around um, who we are as a people, around um, uh, what our contribution has been to this country and what our contribution has been to the world, civilization. And so satisfaction looks at that. That's done through many ways, through education, as I mentioned, through museums, through monuments, through setting up special days of commemoration. Um, so satisfaction. So, um, Brother Scotty, let's open this up for you to ask me some questions about any of these 10 things, and we can discuss them a little further. Well, we don't have a lot of time. We got what, about 15 minutes left in the broadcast. And so I'll just yes, uh, keep it brief into what I know, which is history. Because I'm an amateur, I guess you would call an amateur historian. I'm only an amateur in that nobody's paying me to do the research. But um, 
I want to start with something you brought up. I think it was under number one or number two when you talked about Sherman's field order. Which number was it, 14? Yes, Sherman's field order, 15. 15, 40 acres and a mule. And, you know, living in a rural area, you know, um, it just gives me a greater appreciation for land and being in control of land. I don't really call it ownership because anytime you don't pay your property taxes, they can seize your land and uh, sell it, auction it off. Um, But also when you think about how today it's been reported by people who look into it, only 2% of African Americans and I'm speaking and, and this isn't just you know the descendants of victims here in America but I imagine it it, it just includes black people because we know uh, immigrants came here from the Caribbean also victims of slavery just not of the US government mm-hmm. but but even when they came here and was able to acquire land you know you had to throw them in there with the victims of all the land that has been stolen from us so for, so so they didn't give us the 40 acres and 40 acres is a lot of land. You know what I'm saying? It is it, that's a lot of land if you know what an acre is. And if you ever been in the country and seen, you know, wide open fields and or or all these woods and stuff like that. So so that would have been you know, the perfect way, I think, and the perfect time to pay that reparations. You know, I think that really would have helped those victims, you know, um, have a base for for family wealth, like you talked about, you know, and and so I, I feel like land should be included in any reparation proposals that that Congress come up with, but not only land, but tax exempt status, because again, you don't really own nothing if you can fall behind on your taxes, and then you know the county government can come seize it. So I think I think the victims, the descendants of the victims, should be exempt from those taxes. Um, do you have any commentary on that yeah, before people, I go to the final point? Yeah, sure. Uh, a couple of things came to mind. One is that um, you know there's a concept of trust, and from what I understand, when you put land in a in a land trust, mm-hmm. then um, people aren't able to sell the land as well as they don't have to pay taxes on that particular land. I could be wrong about the taxes part, but no, you're right. There are nonprofit, the nonprofit family. I've looked into them uh, or looked into the topic, yeah. but there are nonprofit land fam uh, family land trusts. Is what I was trying to say. Yeah, so family land trust, I think, would be one strategy that we would want to incorporate into our reparations demand. Um, as well as one of the things that also came back to my mind, again, you were talking about being a historian, was, you know, one of the stories I think that's important um, to consider about about 40 Acres and a Mule was that before Sherman wrote the uh, his field order 15, he met with a group of about 20 ministers. And many of these ministers had um, brought their way themselves out of enslavement. Um, And so he met with these 20 ministers, and actually the the same book that I quoted from actually has the minutes from the meeting that he had with these ministers. And so one of the questions he asked the ministers was that, you know, um, this is right before the end of, you know, Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so he asked them, you know, slavery is about to end. What is it that you all would like, you know, as some form of, you know, compensation? And, And so... The, the response was land mm-hmm. because, you know, we know how to work the land. We know that we can take care of ourselves. If, you know, we just have the land, we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, so, but then the second question, I'll, you know, which was, and that's why I mentioned it also when I mentioned in, when I spoke earlier, was that he asked was, did they want land, you know, scattered amongst the United, you know, United States, or did they want to be in a separate territory? And the the person who was the spokesperson said that they wanted to be in a they wanted to be in a separate territory. Right, left alone. And so, right, and so the uh, and so, but for, it was interesting to me because I think and I that for some.
some reason he said, well, he may not speak for everyone mm-hmm. on that particular issue. So what they did is actually went around the room and asked all of the other 19 ministers, you know, are they in accordance with that's what they want? I mean, land and to be separate, to be separate on the land. And they all, all, all 18, 18 of them said, yes, they wanted to be separate. And one um, person said that he didn't want to be, uh, the land to be uh, separate. And again, and then we've done more research even in terms of that person was a young man who had just recently moved down south from Maryland. Okay. And so we think that, you know, he had some different kind of influences. You know, he was a young minister, you know, and, and so anyway, um, but that kind so, of yeah, segues so, into so, yeah, my land and, and the fact they knew that land was very important for sustaining themselves. And even with the 40 acres, it was like up to 40 acres. Okay. Um, and those, I mentioned that I had, um, had some college students to do some research for the, for us and, and they pulled the deeds. And so we have, you know, have copies of some of the deeds. Some people got 40 acres, some people got 26 acres, somebody got 13 acres. So it was up to 40 acres okay. that somebody could get. Okay, mm-hmm. but still, even an acre, that's enough for a family back during those times because of the knowledge of farming and working the land and then being able to oh, hunt, yeah. being able to hunt game, especially in the South, you right. know, even though you got game right. all over the United States, but in, in the South, you know, uh, they could be able to feed themselves. So they understood that concept of land. Now, this also goes into my last point. Um, because I have also heard on that point. I just wanted to add. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to add when you were talking about hunting that you know a lot of that land, there's a, a, you know a good stretch of that land was along the, is coastal land as well as islands. So I'm sure there was a lot of like fishing. the Sapelo Islands. There was a lot of fishing industry and shrimp and all of that. Yeah, you talking about the Gullah Geechee seafoods? Huh? Gullah Geechee country is what you're talking about. Correct, correct. So yeah, you had you had that also as as an important um, uh, economic enterprise and self sustaining enterprise as well. Now, but go ahead with your second one. Now, my second one leads into the question of of citizenship because I have also heard other people say that nobody asked us, and actually, right. you just stated that Sherman asked asked the group. You know, nobody asked us per sure. se but a group of rep- representatives that was present at that crucial period of time in the South. Um, and then I'm not right. even looking at it as reparations uh, uh, because he said compensation. Compensation for what? This will be the Confederate States of America if not for African-descended people in the U.S. Army and outside of the U.S. Army working and fighting against you know, the Confederate States of America. So America owes a date, right. a debt just for being, for black people coming and saving it as, you know, a nation and, and what have you. But, but the question of citizenship, though, you know, like you said, you know, there were the one guy said, you know, he don't speak for everybody. And certainly those 19 uh, 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 Christian ministers in that room didn't speak for millions of black people but again they were present they were at had the opportunity to be in that position to negotiate with with the powers that be but after you know the separation and then even the land wasn't given to everyone just a few people as you mentioned then they did ask for citizenship because they saved the united states and that was a movement for the right to vote when you asking for, uh, when you demanding, not asking, when you demanding the right to vote because you just got through fighting a war that lasted about four or five years to to save the United States government from this terrorist organization called called the Confederate States of America, then that's the least you could do if you if you're not going to give me land in this country and you know, leave me alone and let me have some deal similar to some of the, the autonomous in uh, Native American tribes, you know, then then you must give us citizenship. So those black veterans, Frederick Douglass as well, they were demanding the right to vote as payment for their service in the war and, and what have you. But also 
people who did not want to stay and want to go back to Africa had that opportunity because even Lincoln, before he was assassinated, said he didn't think that black and white people could live together. And he was a racist, despite him being a wishy-washy abolitionist, he still was a racist. And he was talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, moving them out the country and establishing colonies in Africa. And then after he was assassinated, Mm -hmm. you know, that society or organization whose name escapes me right now did set up and pay for any African descended person that wanted to leave to go to the colony of Liberia in Africa. So, you know, so that's Mm -hmm. our, you, you know, that's like, like, we had opportunity and I feel like, you know, it's not correct for one person to state that all black people thought this way or all black people thought that way. And thank God we do have the documentation. We could look up, uh, uh, that, that history, but I, I just, mm-hmm. um, think it's important that people had choices and they exercised those choices in terms of whether they wanted That's to stay true. here and 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 demand full citizenship and all the rights and privileges that come mm-hmm. with that, which we still, as you document, mm-hmm. talking about the police brutality and all that, these practices still continue today. Even slavery is still continuing mm-hmm. in a different form. But that that's all, you know, mm-hmm. though when you brought up those two points, my mind immediately just jumps to the time period and start, you know, uh um looking over what I've read about that period. But that's all, brother Jamel K. Thank you. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I guess one of the things that um, that that I've learned in this movement is that that after enslavement period, basically we look at ourselves as former prisoners of war. We should have been given like three options: one, to go back to where we came from, and like you said, there was a movement. There was Liberia and Sierra Leone as well, but primarily Liberia for the United States for people to um, go back to Africa. And there was organizations that organized, self-organized themselves to take boats back, to, to take people to um, Liberia and to, and to West Africa. Um, and so you're right, that did, that, that did happen during that, during that time. And then there was even the Exodus movement where people left from the South and went out West to get um, land that was being opened, opened up and was now um, Nebraska and Oklahoma and Kansas. Um, so basically, what people would give three options: one, to leave the United States and go back to where they came from; two, to have a separate territory within the United States; three, to stay within the United States and work out, like you say, citizenship or what have you. Um, one of the things that's also interesting, and this is this is all coming from this book um, put together by um, Mario Vidali and some others called the Forty Acres Document. There was also a man named Henry Adams. And what he did was he just took it upon himself to go around and to poll people of African descent on what they wanted. And then he ended up making a report to um, the Congress about that. And again, basically, the, the, the two wishes that came mostly was that to go back to Africa or somewhere or to have a separate territory. I'll have to read that document again. But... Um, that was um, Henry Adams, and, and we actually um, made a formal presentation to Congress um, from from his um, self-survey that he did. So yeah, so yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a complex situation. I mean, it's like you said, it's not just like everybody thought one way on, on a particular thing. You know, at that time, you know, different people had different ideas uh, around what they saw. They you know, should happen after um, uh, the enslavement period ended, or and then again, we still put quotation marks around that, right? Uh, transformed into a different form. All right, well, we 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 have come to the end of our show, and I want to thank you for listening to Conversation Reparations. Again, my name is Brother Jumoke Ifetayo. I serve as the Southeast Regional Coordinator of Encobra. I also um, facilitate or co-facilitate the Ashe Committee of Encobra and host this show. And I want to thank my engineer in this case, uh, 
helped me helped to interview me. <laughs> Brother Scotty Reed, who, who helped us to produce this show each each time. You can find out more about Encobra at EncobraOnline.org, and you can reach me directly at ReparationsJ, Reparations the letter J at gmail.com. And what we, what I would like to bring up later, we're going to see if we can get someone, bring someone on the show to talk about those um, African artifacts and being moved back to Africa, as well as begin to interview some of the towns that we've mentioned. There's probably over 20 cities now that are um, moving on this issue of reparations, and we want to start bringing in some of those um, representatives to talk about what they're doing in their city. So. Look forward to that in upcoming um, shows. You've been listening to Conversation Reparations. Conversation Reparations. Conversation Reparations. No, we won't renounce the debt. America bounced the check. And no, it ain't all about the dough. But my people still pull reparations.